1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Crawford Gribben, author of the book, An Introduction to John Owen, A Christian Vision for Every Stage of Life. Crawford, welcome back to the New Books Network.
2: Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here.
1: And it's great to have you back on the biography podcast again. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
2: Sure. Well, I am a New Books Network host, I suppose I should say that. I also do podcasts on uh, the website. Uh, most of my podcasts feature on the Christian Studies channel, and I suppose that uh, is a fair reflection of what my interests are both in reading and writing. Uh, I mainly work on uh, writing about the history of Puritanism or the history of Evangelicalism, although I've just completed a book called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland, which Tries to tell the big story of the arrival, the evolution and decline, possibly even future disappearance uh, of Christianity on the island in which I live. Uh, I live near Belfast where I teach at Queen's University and I've been there since 2013.
1: Hmm. Now... When we had you on uh, the New Books and Biography uh, channel in the past, it was to feature your biography of John Owen. Your new book is an introduction to John Owen. And I was wondering if if you could perhaps start us off by telling us some of the ways in which uh, the two books differ. And what was it that led you to do a new book on John Owen?
2: That's right, Mark. So a couple of years ago, you and I spoke about the the first book I did on John Owen which is called John Owen and English Puritanism Experiences of Defeat, and that was published by Oxford University Press in 2016 as part of a a series that Oxford University Press does on historical theology. So it was quite a long book. It was about um, 170,000 words. Um, It took a long, long time to write and research. Um, I had a huge amount of input and advice from friends along the way, and for for that project I, I was trying to I suppose I was trying to counter a, a trend in a lot of historical theological scholarship which focuses upon ideas over people. And obviously, you know, you're the host of the Biography Channel. We're both interested in biography as a genre and the ways in which biography can be adapted to tell different kinds of stories, not only about people, but also about ideas. And so, what I wanted to do in that first book was to try to not do not, not, not do what a lot of other people who've written and known have done, which is to give very detailed examinations of particular sets of ideas within his uh, big theological um, uh, view, but rather to tell the story of his life and to show the way in which he engaged materially with theological ideas throughout his life, emphasizing how these ideas changed over time and how they reflected different stages of his life or, or different experiences in life um the, the The bigger book go- obviously goes into much more detail than, than than the present book that we're going to talk about today, but they, they, they tell the same story in terms of biography, which is that Owen grows up in a fairly conventional Church of England home in the 1610s, 1620s. Uh, he goes off to Oxford University as an undergraduate at the age of twelve and um, he spends uh, a few years in Oxford where um, uh, the university is going through a major restructuring. Which reflects the, um, the a, a kind of theological revolution. So, in the 1620s and 30s, the Church of England was being pushed really into a new direction, away from the very emphatically Protestant uh, and almost Puritan view that had dominated the first couple of generations of English reform, towards a much more aesthetically rich, um, uh, liturgically sophisticated and almost, you might say, um, historically ecumenical view of what the church should be. So the English church was losing some of the things that made it, in the eyes of its Puritan supporters, that made it Protestant, and that caused, eventually, a a civil war. Uh, During that civil war, from 1642 to 49, Owen worked as a parish minister within the Church of England, but gradually changed his mind, took on a slightly more radical complexion in his view of what the church should be, became a Presbyterian, later on a Congregationalist. Um, th- that was not only a religious or theological decision in the 1640s, that was also a political decision. And as he moved from Anglicanism through Presbyterianism, ultimately to identify with the Congregationalists, he also came into the orbit of the Parliamentary Army, which was headed up by Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell spotted Owen's potential um, very quickly as someone who had Enormous intellectual and oratorical gifts. Someone who could really describe what the parliamentary project was all about uh, in the conf- in, in the context of civil war. And so uh, it was really as a consequence of Oliver Cromwell's patronage that Owen ended up in um, preaching to MPs on the day after they had executed King Charles the First, one of the great moments of discontinuity in early uh, modern English history. And following on his commemoration stroke celebration of the execution of the king, um, Cromwell then invited uh, Owen to accompany parliamentary troops on an incredibly controversial invasion and conquest of Ireland, uh, a a, a military adventure that's controversial still to the present day. In 1649 and fifty. And in 1650 to 51, Owen then accompanied Cromwell and his troops into Scotland for a similar but much less bloody invasion uh, of the Presbyterian Northern Kingdom. Uh, Cromwell by then had really um, got the measure of Owen. When they came back to England, he appointed Owen into various administrative positions in the University of Oxford. Eventually in 1652, making Owen the vice chancellor of that university, the highest um, administrative position. Uh, within the university, and through the 1650s, one becomes a really important statesman, if you like, religious statesman of the re- English Republic as it's trying to craft a new religious, um, a new religious establishment, a, 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 a national um, church settlement. That fails. Um, Owen and a number of other army republicans get really concerned that Oliver Cromwell's court is turning much more towards the the, the kind of um, dissolute. Culture that they had complained about when Charles the First had been king, and so they, they they gamble and and they they attempt a coup which goes really badly wrong. Instead of resetting the revolution, it actually brings the revolution to an end, and the consequence of the chaos that ensues is that, to cut a very long story short, Charles II Second returns to London, um, is is um, installed as king, and with the support of a parliament that he calls to to support his his work, sets about an incredibly bloody, brutal persecution of dissenters. Uh, That is, um, those English Protestants who could not conform to the newly elaborate, liturgically sophisticated, historically ecumenical Church of England. Uh, These dissenters get very badly persecuted. In an episode of persecution between Protestants that's really without parallel anywhere else in early modern Europe, Owen goes into hiding, more or less, for much of the 1660s, begins to write voluminously, um, eventually emerges into public view again in the 1670s. He's the pastor of a tiny, tiny congregation of around 30 people that gradually uh, enlarges until it becomes a group of around 130 to 150 people. Um, And and he's writing, he's writing all through this period. Uh, He writes in the region of 8 million words, 80 separately published titles. Uh, And and one of the reasons why he writes so much in this period is because he feels that everything he has worked for is really going wrong and that all the gains of the revolution, not just the political gains, which, which had obviously collapsed, but all the theological or religious gains in which the Puritan theologians had really begun to refine what orthodoxy ought to be, all of those gains were going And even among the community of dissenters, which was being persecuted by the state church and the English government, even within that community, uh, there was a turning away from the doctrine of the Trinity, for example, one of the great cardinal Christian doctrines, or even the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which had been the centerpiece of the Protestant Reformation. And so when Owen dies in 1683, a couple of months after his arrest on suspicion of being involved in a plot against the king's life, As he dies in the summer of 1683, he is desperately worried that everything he's worked for has failed and that Charles II, who is king, will be followed by the openly Catholic Duke of York, who is the king's brother, as king, which is in fact what happened. Charles II was followed by James II. And Owen's fear as he dies is that just as the Revolution failed politically, so the Reformation would fail religiously. And England would be brought into alignment with Catholic France under Louis XIV, under despotic government and under tyrannical Catholic uh, rule. So that's really Owen's life. Um, that, that that was the story of the big book. The, the new book is much, much shorter. It's 40,000 words long. It's designed in a way to make that story more accessible, but it also redesigns uh, uh, the, the biography. It, it makes the biography a bit more instrumental towards... Um, discussing some of the key themes in in Owen's writing about stages of life. Um, It's accessible, it's shorter, um, as I said, it's designed for a slightly different audience. I think there's there's new arguments here that I think scholars um, can engage with, but it's also designed to be open-ended in a way that um, ordinary people who might be interested in John Owen could pick up this book and hopefully um, make sense of his life.
1: You do two things in the book in particular that I thought were absolutely fascinating. The first of them is how you you connect. You have much more of a focus upon the upon Owen's theology in this book, and you in the book you connect it to uh, the the stages of his own life and show how his thinking changed over the course of it. But you also, as you were describing, you know, you're you're showing you know that 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 uh, you know the connection there. It, it really shows how. How this theology, which we t- sometimes can uh, think of as being abstract and and uh, and 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 very uh, speculative, how it you know has a relevance, and it's not just in term, uh, not just a relevance to us today in terms of how we think about the the role of theology in our lives, but especially how theology was so very much alive for for, for John Owen and the people of his
2: time. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point, Mark. I mean, I suppose one of the things I wanted to do in this book was not so much to provide a a kind of intellectual biography, which was really the focus of the previous book, but instead to, I suppose, instrumentalise the biographical narrative so that telling the story of Owen's life has that or, or can have that focus on theological ideas. And so I structured the book into four major chapters, one on childhood, one on youth, one on middle age and one on death and eternal life. Obviously, conclusion and introduction on either side of that. And what I tried to do there was to show how Owen's own experience, let's say, of, of childhood, or indeed of being a father to 10 children, all of whom predeceased him, quite a tragic story in itself. But his, his own experience of childhood, or even of fatherhood, of, of being a parent, helped him think theologically about really basic questions um, that cannot be abstract, either for the father of a self consciously Christian family, as Owen was or indeed for the pastor of either a parish or of a smaller congregation, and Owen was both of those as well. So, you know, when Owen, for example, is dealing with um, mothers, let's say, in his congregation who've experienced the death of an infant, he needs to know what to say to them. And, And so this chapter about childhood tries to put together some of the leading themes in the way that Owen either experienced childhood and then developed theological thinking around that experience or indeed, the way in which he he simply just preached or or wrote about um, what a Christian childhood ought to be like. So in that chapter, for example, it starts off with baptism, and we mentioned earlier on the ways in which one changes his mind. One of the really interesting ways in which one changes his mind is in relation to this idea of baptism. So he always believed that the infants that that infants born into to Christian homes should be baptized, um, but he he changed really radically. His justification for that practice, uh, and th- that's kind of interesting, actually. In a way, Owen is continually lowering um, his 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 vision of what infant baptism um, does. He starts off thinking it, it does quite a lot, but really, I suppose, within about ten years of hit the beginning of his writing career, he's come to the conclusion that it's a, it's a sign, and it doesn't really affect anything, and that allows him then to, to have some critical distance from Presbyterians but also to warm up in his relationship with Baptists, who were this new, you know, for all that they're a major denomination, especially in America today, at this point, they were, they were very, very new um, and, you know, largely unknown. So that's that's the first chapter uh, on, on, on childhood. And that, I suppose, explains the method I tried to adopt in some of the other chapters, too.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it, a real POS you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system
1: you see that method uh, at play in the second chapter on youth as well he and I, I thought uh, that that chapter was especially interesting for me because it, it, you're seeing him as, uh, you, know, you know, with the you know, success of the parliamentarians in the Civil War, they're in much more of an inf- uh, of an influential position in terms of shaping not just uh, doctrine or theology, but they're also, you know, dealing with this in terms of, you know, how English life is to be lived on, on a practical level. And so you, you describe how, you know, here he is in the 1650s, and he's putting a lot of thought into this idea of how do you prepare young people to live a good christian life and 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 he is tackling this uh you know with much more a, a, co- a consciousness if, shall we say of you know having lived that experience having gone through it himself obviously now you're talking about him being a middle being more towards middle age but he is thinking you know a, a t- addressing what is a very alive problem for him and his contemporaries
2: yeah I, I, absolutely i mean so for, for all the owen thinks about childhood in terms of let's say baptism as the sacrament of initiation which is then followed by catechism which is the process of instruction uh, in christian ideas and and spiritual formation within the home he he then has to think about the danger which he sees facing the, the young people he's addressing the young men he addresses when he preaches in oxford sunday by sunday to all the undergraduates the danger he sees facing them is that the christian religion will be will be intellectual a set of ideas that doesn't really touch the heart or change the experience or, or behaviour. And so one of the things he does it, it, as, he, as he preaches to these undergraduates is he, he, he tries to redesign what Calvinism looks like. So it, if anyone has done much reading and they'll know that he's often um, just um, described or sometimes even dismissed as a very high Calvinist theologian. And he is, I mean, he really is, but he's incredibly inventive too. And he, he ditches scholastic reasoning and the subtleties uh, of, of of the schoolmen that, uh, that he would have been teaching these undergraduates Monday to, to Saturday. And on Sundays, what he does is he, he preaches these very e- e- emotional, experiential kinds of sermons uh, that really ask questions about the extent to which the people he's speaking to have been changed by, by what they have been taught. So... You know he 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 he's got various techniques for doing this. one of them, I think what one of the most interesting is rhetorical. And he takes the idea, for example, in one of his most famous sets of sermons from this period, he takes the idea of God as a as fountain. and he runs with this image of fountain. And this image of fountain just spills over into uh, the way in which he describes the the, the the inner workings of the Trinity, let's say. Or the ways in which an individual Christian believer kind of fellowship with each member of the, with each person, I should say, of the Trinity individually, uh, and and so this fountain imagery just just keeps bubbling up. You know, I'm, I'm even doing it myself unconsciously as I'm talking <laughs> about this. Uh, but 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 here it is. You know, it's, it's bubbling up everywhere, all through this kind of narrative. Um, now, w- one of the really fun things about writing about Owen's uh, representation of youth was was working with manuscripts with with notes taken by some of the. Young men who were listening to him preach, and what was really fun was not only to discover those um, they were new to me, uh, but but also then to see how the notes that these undergraduates were taking compared with the versions of these sermons that Owen himself preached. And there's quite a striking correlation. It's it's, it's quite interesting, which I suppose from an historian's point of view, from a biographer's point of view, Mark helps us um, have some kind of confidence that, that the published texts that one put through the press are actually reasonably close to the, the texts as he was uh, delivering them and as people listened to them uh, Sunday by Sunday in Oxford.
1: Now, in those two chapters we've just uh, covered, the chapter on childhood and the chapter on youth, he is addressing these issues uh, theologically, but he's also addressing them in terms of these questions about the role of Christianity in the lives of people who are, in effect, being taught it or who are being introduced to it. You get to the chapter on middle age, and it seems that it's it's a much more personal engagement. It's it's, it's not just a, a problem that he is seeking to uh, address or to solve or to or or considering how to best approach a situation, but it's it's much more uh, personal in the sense that he's dealing with these the question about the Christian life in middle age. From his own personal experience he by this point is middle-aged in the fit in the 1660s and 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 he's considering it in terms of that, that personal element really does come across in that section
2: yeah that, that's that's an interesting observation that hadn't actually occurred to me that um in, in in the previous two chapters on childhood and youth he's he's writing retrospectively but in the chap in, in his material in middle age He's writing about his own experience of life as it's happening. Um, I suppose I haven't really thought enough about that. But that's a a really astute observation. And I suppose as Owen thinks about middle age, he he thinks really about two issues, or at least there's two issues jump out at me um, in his writings about the experience of middle age uh, faith or Christian faith in middle age. One of those, I suppose, the most obvious from uh, most of Owen's writing is responsibility within the church. And so... You know the children who've been baptized and catechized in his ideal life then become the young men or young women who have a personal experience of this theology that it becomes alive to them as they become alive to these things uh, and then the, the question is well how do they live in the world and i suppose one would say that you know in a responsible christian middle life um, you'd want to make sure that you were actively involved in church uh, and he writes extensively about how churches should be organized how they should worship what they should do. And some of his stuff there is really kind of unexpected uh, in interesting ways. And then the second thing he writes about is how Christians should engage in the world. And I, I suppose that that's that's a big, big thing for Owen in the 1660s because the people he's writing to and ultimately writing for are, are members of this community of dissenters or nonconformists. So these are people who have been shut out of the institutions of the state, they can no longer go to university because they're not members of the established church, they can't enter parliament, um, they, they're, they can't enter the professions, law, etc. So their their experience of life is really, really circumscribed. But what they can do is engage in trade, and dissenters, nonconformists in the later seventeenth and eighteenth centuries in England, tend to do very well as as businessmen. And 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 as men and women who are involved in trade in various ways, and so Owen writes about this, and some of his writing that that no one has really, as far as I can tell, written very much about, deals with economics, uh, very simple kind of economic statements, but statements that recognise that that much of the economic life was driven by the the huge percentage of people, the, the the very large minority that were shut out now from the institutions of the state, and and Owen's great argument, as he writes for and ultimately on behalf of this community of dissenters, is to say that these individuals are making a very significant economic contribution to the state and therefore they're helping stabilise the state in the aftermath of civil war. Therefore it's only reasonable for the government to think again about whether it's right to shut these individuals out from the benefits of participating in the state. and. Uh, he asked the question of whether, in fact, the government could not do something to, to bring them in to help these individuals experience the rewards of being in the state in a much more obvious way. I think what, where this gets interesting is that um, one of Owen's former students in Christchurch, Oxford in the 1650s took these arguments and ran with them in ways that Owen would probably have found astonishing. That student was John Locke, and through the 1650s, As a student, Locke appears to have very much imbibed the ideas of toleration and liberty that Owen and other parliamentarians, ex-parliamentarians or republicans were promoting during uh, the Cromwellian period. Immediately upon the restoration of Charles II, Locke goes through some kind of political crisis of faith isn't quite sure where he stands in the first few years of the of, of, of the restoration. By the end of the 1660s, about 10 years after the restoration or thereabouts, he's moving now back towards the ideals of toleration, of liberty, um, of, of, of freedom that Owen had been teaching in Oxford in the 1650s. And after 1666, 67, and into the 1670s, and of course most famously of all in the 1680s and the run-up to the Glorious Revolution, and after it, Locke begins to make arguments that really channel Owen's thinking. Um, and so, one of the one of the arguments I tried to make in the book, although in a very kind of gentle, circumspect way, <laughs> uh, because I, I'm not quite sure that I've got everything exactly lined up, is that the, is that Owen's ideas of to- toleration or, or freedom within society provide John Locke with the tools he needs to become recognised as he is today as one of the formers of what we might call classical liberalism. So I think I think that's what I think that's what Owen is doing as he thinks about middle age. He's thinking about uh, the Christians' rich participatory life within the fellowship of the church, and he writes often very movingly about what Christians can do when they are together in these private spaces. But for Owen, these really are private spaces. Um, you know, he he has, he has quite a sharp distinction in this point in his life between life in the world and life in the church. Life in the church is rich, rewarding, warm, encouraging, and so on. He also recognises that life in the world for many dissenters is hard, um, their opportunities are are limited, and so he wants to make arguments for them and ultimately on their behalf to see that they might have greater liberty.
1: Now, in the three chapters that we've just des- that you've just described, we've been talking about how Owen uh, engaged with a lot of questions about life and the uh, role of a Christian, how a Christian could live a good life, how a Christian could, you know, in effect, you know, live a Christian life in 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 the world. And then, in your penultimate chapter, you talk about how he is engaging with death and and the afterlife and i I thought this was fascinating too because it's the kind of thing you you see him not just you know dealing with the questions of the here and now and 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 and, you know these you know you might think of as you know you know fundamental issues of, of of everyday existence but that he is especially as life as as he gets older he is addressing more and more this question of you know, what happens, uh, uh, you know, with death and, and you know, how to think about that. Now, I was wondering if you could perhaps maybe uh, explain a bit, you know, his thinking there and how it connects with what you've uh, already described in, in, in
2: the early chapters. Sure. Well, I suppose one of the key things about Owen is that he he is, he, by the time he comes to his own death in 1683, uh, he, he had been living with the experience of death for a very, very long time. Um, I mentioned before he had 10, um, ten children uh, with his first wife Mary um, each of those ten children died before him, some of them died in childhood uh, in fact most of them died in childhood um, three or four of them died at the end of the 1640s when they would have been very young during three years of death very difficult years at the end of the 1640s environmentally there was lots of disease uh, there was lots of hunger food supply was a real issue and smallpox and other diseases then came in the aftermath of that and you know he, he, uh, as he was writing about childhood he was also having to bury his own children which must have been a really difficult experience um through through the 16 early 1660s um he would have been very very aware of the executions of a number of people who were his friends who were leaders of the Republic or who'd identified themselves with the Republic or with the execution of Charles I. And when Charles II came back to power, one of the things that he and his first parliament did was to drop essentially a death list. Uh, and those men who were in, whose names were included in that death list suffered really horrifically um, being hung, then drawn. In other words, literally their bodies were, were dislocated, their bones were dislocated as they were pulled apart. Then they were um, disemboweled. Uh, publicly, some of them were still alive when this was happening. in fact, one of them when he was dis- when he was being disembowelled, sat up and slapped the executioner in the face uh, and then they were uh, the their heads were cut off, they were cut into quarters and different parts of the corpse were hung up in different parts of London. and so for you know the best part of twenty years as Owen initially surreptitiously and later more publicly made his way in and out of the capital, he would have been going through major thoroughfares where Bits of the bodies, perhaps even recognisable bits of the bodies of his friends were in public display as symbols. Foucault, I suppose, would, would talk about this as symbols of the, the power of the state to um, to, to execute um, its, its version of justice on, on those of whom it disapproved. So, you know, Owen would have been very conscious of that as well. And then into the 1660s and 1670s, you know, he was just getting older. He'd never been in great health. Uh, But as he got older, he also became aware that many of the the theologians or preachers or administrators who he had worked with through the revolution were themselves dying. Um, All of that's happening. Then in 1665 and 1666, um, uh, England, especially London, where Owen spent much of this period, was hit by uh, the great plague, bubonic plague, which carried off hundreds of thousands of inhabitants of the country, and then London itself was, large parts of it were destroyed by the fire in 1666. So you know, there's huge, huge experience of disaster and death through, through much of Owen's life. But he begins to think about this theologically, and he preaches sequences of sermons preparing his people to die. Um, now these, Owen's not often thought of as being a moving writer for various reasons, I think partly unfairly, but, but some of the sermons he preaches in this period, I think you know, the most stone-hearted person could not fail to be moved by by listening to someone obviously in great pain, talking sometimes in very personal terms about just having buried someone that he had known for the you know, previous twenty or thirty years. And so, o- o- Owen is trying to describe to the people who listen to him Sunday by Sunday in these small congregations what death is and what death means. He keeps emphasizing, for example, that all Christians can die safely. In other words, there's no doubt about what happens to a Christian once they are dead. you know they, they go to experience the presence of Christ, one argues. But even if all Christians don't die, even if all Christians can die safely, he says they don't all die happily. And he's trying to prepare the people who listen to him in his little fellowship to die not only safely but also happily. And so he, he, he tries to talk about what what death is, the separation of soul from body, um, he says, you know, it's obvious that we're going to be apprehensive about that because we've never experienced it. But he makes the interesting observation that perhaps we, the nearest we come to the experience of living without our bodies is when we're asleep and when we dream. It's Kind of a, a curious, a, a curious way to approach this. Uh, and, and then he, he he talks in much more detail um, uh, about the ultimate goal, I suppose, um, of 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 death and eternal life, which is to see the face of God, and this is again another interesting point of departure for Owen. In in Christian theology up to this point, um, Christian theologians had really echoed the claims of Thomas Aquinas that the Christian's experience of the beatific vision is to see a vision of God's essence. In other words, the the kind of invisible um, thing that that God is. But Owen says. That's impossible, because God is invisible. So the Christian's experience of the beatific vision is not not a vision of the essence of God, but rather a vision of Jesus Christ, who, remember, he would argue as an Orthodox theologian, is bodily present in heaven. So, so among all the spirit beings, um, there there is this one, and there is there is Jesus Christ, the incarnate Jesus Christ, who still possesses a human body. Um, uh, who, who still is a human person um unite, uh, uh, united to the divine person of the son um So th- I think that, that that's a kind of a really interesting moment in, in Owen's life where he's prepared to make these really radical revisions to accepted claims in Christian theology sometimes in subtle ways, sometimes not so subtle ways, but there's one way he does it. Um, um, really thinking about the experience of death.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us uh, what you're working on now?
2: Sure. Well, I've got two books coming out next year, Mark. Um, one of them is about uh, survivalist cultures in Idaho, so completely different uh, to to all this stuff on the 17th century. And the other, the other book that's coming out next year, All Being Well, is a book that I mentioned to you earlier on today, which is a book called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland, which is a big story um, really reaching back into um, Celtic Ireland Um, the arrival of Patrick, um, the growth, evolution, decline uh, of the Christian religion in Ireland, the ways in which it shaped the experience of being Irish, and even uh, the fabric of the island itself, and ultimately uh, the the experience of secularization and some comment on what might come next.
1: They both sound like fascinating books. and I hope that uh, you uh, can uh, come back to the Books Network and uh, discuss both of them.
2: Well, thanks. I really appreciate your time today, Mark. And we
1: appreciate yours. Have a wonderful day.
2: Thank you, Mark.